you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8. New Testament book of Mark, chapter 8. This morning we will finish the chapter reading verses 34 to 38. If you're a guest with us, we are working our way through the book of Mark, where Mark presents Jesus to us as our king, the king we just sung about together. Such an important chapter as Jesus has been teaching us about his mission, and today he will flip the script and start talking to us about our own mission. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus takes us to school. He takes his disciples to school and teaches three lessons about the cross. And this morning, we will hear the first lesson as Jesus teaches us the way of the cross. All that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. This is the word of the Lord. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think it happens when you have kids, when you have grandkids, there's a turning point. Christmas is entirely different. You never experience Christmas the same way. As you're growing up as a kid, and maybe even into your young adulthood, before you have kids, before you have your own family, Christmas is a lot about what you get. It's about what you receive. That big present mom and dad got you, the big present grandparents got you. Even as you first get married before you have kids, maybe even that still happens. But the minute grandchildren come into the scene, you are never going to have another Christmas like that. And it won't be about what you get because most of your relatives aren't going to get you anything. But they will get some things for your kids, for the grandkids. Amen? I got some grandparents with me, right? <laughs> but Christmas flips. Instead of being about what you get, it rightly becomes what you give. And you experience Christmas watching how your children, how your grandchildren open up the gifts and receive that Christmas turning point happens in Christianity. It happens in discipleship. It happens as you follow Jesus. It happens in this chapter. Chapter 8 is all about turning points, flipping the script. Up until this point, Jesus has been sharing with his disciples who he is. In his mission, he must die. He must rise again. He must go to the cross. Peter tries to stop him. And Jesus confronts Peter and tells him this is the only way. And the reason it's so essential for Peter to understand it 
is because the story is going to flip. And it is not about what Peter and you and me get from Jesus. It's not about what we receive. But once we know him, it is about what you and I give. That's the way of the cross. As we look at this section, Mark is teaching us this, brothers and sisters. Once you get who Jesus is, you face what you must be. Once you understand, once you embrace, once you believe what Jesus has done, you are looking in the mirror at what you must do. This is the way of the cross. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want you to notice right off the bat, who is Jesus talking to? Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. Who is Jesus teaching the way of the cross? Friends, everything Jesus is about to say is for everyone who would follow Jesus. There are no elite Christians that have to follow the way of the cross. And there are no secondary Christians who don't have to follow this. This is a universal. If you don't follow the way, you do not know the way. If you do not live this path, you do not know Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after Jesus, these are the things you must be and you must do as a follower of Christ. With all that in mind, there's two major sections in this major passage in the book of Mark. Two major sections. The first one is the demands of Jesus. The demands for every Christian, every follower of Jesus. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has just told Peter everything he must do, and now the script flips. He's telling you everything you must do. Everything we must be and do. These are the three demands. The first one, Jesus says, is deny yourself. Now, in the holidays, we're not doing a lot of denying, right? Whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, we're doing a lot of splurging and devouring and eating and feasting. But then New Year's Eve comes along and we make these plans to get back on track and we're going to start denying ourselves. A little less chocolate cake. A little less candy canes. We're going to be smart about our eating and our decisions. We're going to start denying ourselves. That's the way we think. Towards Easter, there's this whole segment of Christianity that, that celebrates Lent. And what do they do? They deny themselves some specific pleasure. On Fridays, they deny themselves meat. They'll only eat fish. Jesus, when he says deny yourself, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying eat a little bit better, be a little smarter with your money, don't have as much fun. He's not saying that. It goes beyond that. The word deny points us to what Peter does to Jesus. Peter, before the cross, he doesn't just have a little less Jesus, he cuts himself off from Jesus. He says, I don't even know that guy. I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not his follower. He denies Christ. 
In the same way, Jesus tells us, deny yourself. Cut yourself off from your own person. It's it's not self-discipline. It's a complete surrender. Friend, when Jesus says deny yourself, he's saying you must renounce everything about you. Not just what kind of dessert you like. He's saying renounce your own personality. Renounce your own identity. Renounce your ambitions, your dreams, your goals, your orientation, your person, everything about you, cut it off. Friends, living a life for Christ means living a life that says no to me, myself, and I. Every time, every way, no matter what. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul tells us to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You see that no provision, not a little bit less provision, no provision. Friends, the world, and many in the church, many today, many in this room, it's, it's ingrained in us. What do we say? Be yourself. Treat yourself. Don't let anybody make you deny yourself. Embrace yourself. Champion yourself. And you do any of those things and you make that your lifestyle, you are not on the way of the cross. Jesus plainly says, deny yourself. The second demand, he says, is take up your cross. Virtually impossible to do, but we need to hear this with new words. The cross, one writer says, is domesticated. The cross is a little puppy dog in our society today. It's cute. We want one in our house. We want to just hang it up on the wall. We want to wear it on our jewelry. It doesn't mean what it means to Christ. Friends, the cross was not a decoration. It was a torture device. It wasn't a word in conversation that that meant a, a burden to bear, a trial that we're going through, an annoyance in our day. The cross was a weapon of genocide and terror. Thousands of of people were crucified in the street. They're hung up, tortured, naked, exposed to the weather, exposed to the animals to be eaten, brutalized publicly to be humiliated and shamed. It would be like an electric chair placed in the middle of downtown, out in the open, This is what Jesus wants us to hold and to take up. Not a necklace, a noose. The only mention of the word cross is here until we get to the cross of Jesus in Mark chapter 15. Now notice whose cross we're talking about in Mark chapter 8. Whose cross is it? It's not Jesus's. It's ours. 
take up his cross. Take up your cross. Jesus is saying, friends, you believe in me? Get ready for an execution. You want to follow me? Get in line for a slow, painful, miserable death. Jesus, friends, I don't care what anybody's told you in the church. It is a lie. Jesus did not come to give you health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus did not come so that you would feel good about yourself, so that you would be happy. Jesus came so you could die and be holy. Jesus says, take up your cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr martyr who stood up to the Nazi party, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Friends, let me remind you, please, this is not an optional path of Christianity. This is a demand from Christ. There's another demand. Jesus says, follow me. Now, if you notice the sentence in verse 34, Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must follow me. If anyone would come after me, he better really get ready to come after me. He, he needs to follow. Jesus' path to glory leads to death. And no one who follows Jesus gets another path. Hear, hear the adamant force behind Jesus' words. If anyone wants to come after me, get ready. Friends, this is all or nothing discipleship. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. As as David Garland writes, this is what separates admirers from disciples. And friends, listen, this is the season and we need to hear this more than any. This is what separates people who like Jesus and are okay with Jesus and people who are ready to follow Jesus. Are you an admirer or are you a follower? Which one are you? Have you denied yourself to the point you've given up the right to follow your own ambitions? Have you you denied yourself to the point that you've laid down personal goals at Jesus' feet and said, I won't go after those anymore? I have a new goal to die for you. To lay down my life and be executed for you? To be crucified with Christ? Or do we just appreciate the good good old cross that gets us into heaven? Where do you find your identity? Is it something about yourself? Something that makes you, you? Or can you say... I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. There are two crosses you have to embrace, not just Jesus's, but also your own. Revelation 2.10 tells us, though, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, 
How can you better live this cross-shaped life? What steps do you need to take? What changes do you need to make? How is God calling you to deny yourself and take up your cross today? And he is. There's not a single one of us who are truly a follower of Jesus walking on the path of the cross who can, who can turn away from this. What does Christ want from you? Don't settle for the superficial. And it's easy to find that superficial Christianity that demands nothing. And that superficial Christianity that demands nothing will lead you to hell. This is the way of the cross. Friends, if you've never had that turning point in your life where you've denied yourself and given Christ everything, if you've never done this, if you've never come after Jesus this way, brothers and sisters, if you've showed up in church and it's all been about what you receive, just like that childhood Christmas morning, it's always about what you get from Jesus and it's always about what he does for you and you've never had that turning point where you give. You do not have eternal life. You are a observer, a spectator, but you are not a disciple. And it may be, friends, that God is calling you who have been around Jesus your entire life and celebrated Jesus maybe your entire life to actually get down on your knees and repent and turn to him and truly come after Jesus for the first time. Friends, if you hear this call and this, this, I know it's heavy, but this is from Jesus, this list of demands and you're still on the fence and you're not sure if it's worth it, you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus lays all his cards out on the table and tells you why you should. After the demands, Jesus gives us the arguments for being a Christian, the reasons you should follow Jesus in the rest of the passage. Let's read verses 35 to 38. Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's three arguments that Jesus makes. If you're not sure that this path of Christian discipleship is for you, if it might be too much for you, if it demands too much for you, and you're thinking about exiting right now, these are the reasons to follow Jesus. The first one is the reversal argument. The reversal argument. In verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's like flying a plane. I have no idea what that's like. I can't fly a plane. But I do know this. When you pull down, you go up. And when you push down, you go. I'm, I'm making this up. When you <laughs> See, I told you I don't know how to fly a plane. I need to get a pilot up here and help me out real quick. When you pull down, you go up. Right? Right? I'm just leaving that. I can't even go any further. It's the reversal argument. Jesus says, 
whatever you try to do, the reverse will happen. I understand that, okay? I understand that better than flying a plane. Whatever you try to do, the opposite is going to happen. Friend, listen, if you try to protect your wealth, it is unprotected. If you try to establish your power, you will be demonstrated as weak. If you try to hoard all the pleasures of this life and just enjoy everything, like Solomon, you will find emptiness and loneliness. But if you lose now, you win. The way up is down. The way to celebration is through defeat. Jesus said, the first shall be last. And the last shall be first. Let's not take this beyond what Jesus is saying. It's kind of what happens with Christmas. This superficial Christmas, we're we're okay with saying all, all, all around the society that Christmas is a season of giving. That it's better to give than receive. And, and moms and parents. You will give for your kid's sake. The police, the firefighters, first responders, they give for our community's sake. Military, give for their country's sake, for their flag's sake. Jesus isn't asking you to give for any of that. Generic giving for something else doesn't count. The way of the cross, Jesus says, is when you lose for my sake. When you lose for the gospel. Specifically, when you give your life for Christ. Jesus says, I want to be your motivation. He's not concerned how much you give to the neighborhood, how much you give to your children, how much you give to your grandchildren, how much you give to the the country. Jesus wants to know, how much do you give for him? He says, live for the gospel. When you leave today, are you living for the gospel, for the gospel's sake? Do you see how you make decisions, how the words out of your mouth, how how your calendar and your plans and your family are supposed to be sacrificed for the sake of the gospel? Your comfort is supposed to be sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Your reputation at work, in the office, is supposed to be expendable. Because you would rather die for the gospel. Friends, believe in the reversal. To live is Christ and to die is gain. There's another argument Jesus makes. It's the economic argument. Verse 36 to 37, Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus has a word play going on. The words life and soul are the same. So there's two lives. There's this physical life and there's an eternal life. There's this temporary life and there's a a heavenly life. There is a, an earthly, finite life, 
And there is a, a life that's worth living. Where do you want to invest? That's the question. Where do you want to invest your one shot at life? You only get one. You get one opportunity to take what you have and invest it into an account. And you have to pick, is it going to be the earthly account or God's kingdom, the heavenly account? Mark Strauss frames Jesus' point with two questions I want to bring to you right now. What would be worth sacrificing for eternal life? What would be worth it to live with Jesus? Everything, right? If you lost your life, if you lost your soul, what could you do to pay God back for that? Nothing, right? Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9, Jesus, the psalmist says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, and he should live on forever and never see the pit. In Matthew 13, verses 45 to 46, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the economic argument, brothers and sisters. If you lose everything right now, it's going to be worth it. If you lose every friend you have, if you lose every cent you have, if you lose every dream you have, if you lose every opportunity you have, it's worth it. And you will have more than you lost when Jesus comes with his glory. It's not the only argument Jesus makes. He closes this section with one final argument. It is the judgment argument. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are two courtrooms that Jesus speaks of where you can settle your case. You can try to settle your case in this generation and find approval and acceptance and a verdict here, or you can wait for the coming days of glory and find your answer in the courtroom of the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what's going to happen on that day when you stand before the judge of all people? Jesus is going to respond to you the way you respond to him right now. The way you respond today in this generation is how Jesus is going to respond to you at the end of time. Now, what's it going to be? When we hear the word ashamed, we think about embarrassment. We think about that awkward feeling when we, when we sit down with someone and we start to tell them about our faith in Christ and, and it feels a little heated and we're a little nervous and we're a little cautious and we're stumbling over words and we don't want people to think bad of us. And we think that's a shame. It has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. In, in the culture of the time, shame cut deeper than that. 
It was an honor and shame culture. So shame meant despising, hating your family. Your family hating and despising you, rejecting you because of the shame that you brought on them. It was a judgment. What Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, is you cannot save face today and escape judgment tomorrow. You cannot be accepted by the world and accepted by God at the same time. Your judgment call on Jesus today will be his judgment call on you tomorrow. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. The writer says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. Brothers and sisters, God has been gracious enough to remind you that that day's coming. You will stand before him. And he will want to know why you belong in his kingdom. And he will want to know what judgment call you made on him and his cross and his work in this life. And as he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? He will ask us the same question. But another question will be answered as well. Who does Jesus say that you are? What will his answer be? Friends, the good news of the gospel goes both ways. The judgment argument goes both ways. Matthew 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You have one life to live. Who are you going to live for? Whose name are you going to stand for? What's God going to have to say to you when you stand before him? In the the heart of your hearts, at the bottom of your heart, in your soul, you should know what he's going to say. Holy Spirit is telling you right now, good or bad, you already know. Friend, listen, if you have never turned to Christ, denied yourself, taken up your cross and followed him, Listen to the apostle as he cries out in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Deny yourself today. Take up your cross today. Follow Jesus today. Listen, you don't have to do anything to earn your salvation. Salvation costs nothing. But it costs you everything. Did you hear that? Salvation costs us nothing, but it costs us everything. Church family, this is not just the call for people who are not believers. If you belong to Jesus, remember what kind of life he's called you to live. Can you say that you live and die for his sake? In this last week, you know, it's all hustle and bustle. Every day is just moving so fast. And we get caught up in the moment and caught up in all the urgent things going on right now. And we we fall into these patterns where we're just living for ourselves. Can you say... You're dying for the gospel. Kent Hughes, 
warns us, we ease our souls into a living death by the respectable sin of selfishness. Where are we being selfish? Friends, God is calling us back to the way of the cross. You cannot live the selfless, cross-shaped life and have selfishness pervade at the same time. Those don't mix. What are you unwilling to lose for Jesus? As I, as I call on you and myself and all of us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, what part of yourself are you refusing to give to Jesus? What part of your lifestyle, what part of your personality, what part of, of your practices and your rhythms in life and the things that you love are you too in love with to give to Christ? What sacrifice would be too much? Friends, as Philippians 3 verse 8 reminds us, count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. For his sake, suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that you may gain Christ. Live for what matters. Live for what counts. Live for what lasts. Point your eyes to the cross and stop seeing this sentimental, lovey-dovey, heartwarming piece of furniture and see it for the sacrificial horror that it is. And know that it doesn't just belong to your Savior, it belongs to you and me as well. This is the life we have been called to. Make your story a cross-shaped life. It's just like Christmas. One day we get to this turning point and we realize it's not all about what we get from God. The cross and the gospel are about what we get to do for him and how we can live for him. Friends, there is hope in the gospel because after the cross and only after the cross do we get the crown. Let us pray.